Today we're, we're looking at a difficult subject uh, in this message. We've been looking at how God speaks on a number of different issues. And uh, today we're going to look at how, what God has to say about one of the most explosive issues in our day. And it is the issue of homosexuality. The issue of homosexuality is, and, and really the larger issue of human sexuality, is such a vast and complex uh, such a controversial and emotionally charged issue that one sermon cannot do it justice to every question that we might have. But there are certain questions that I've, I want to try to attempt in various means and methods today to address. And you're going to see a couple of videos, which is unusual for me. I usually don't even have one video. We're going to have a couple during this message uh, that I think will really be beneficial to our understanding of a Christian worldview with regard to this issue. We're going to look at questions like, what does God say about homosexuality? Is it a sin? Um, how should Christians treat homosexuals? Why are so many Christians against same-sex marriage? Uh, we're going to answer the question, it, can there be such a thing as a homosexual Christian? Um, can a homosexual person be a member of our church? Um, does God love homosexuals? And May, maybe most importantly for someone here today, where can I go for help if, uh, if this is an issue that I struggle with? And so we're going to look at these issues, and so we're going to have to go quickly to cover all of these. But I, I want you to know from the outset that it is important for us as Christians in this generation to be able to answer these types of questions. And it is just as important for us to answer them in the right manner. We need to remember that homosexuals are not our enemy. Satan is. Satan is our enemy. God loves sinners. And if that were not so, then every last one of us would be in deep, deep trouble. Um, it's easy to uh, make fun of someone. It's easy to put down someone uh, when they're different than us. And uh, it's easy to do when you see someone who acts differently who looks differently even. It's easy to get angry when we see someone destroy marriages. We see something destroy marriages and families. Uh, my own extended family has been uh, touched by uh, the sin of homosexuality, and it destroyed my sister's marriage uh, when her husband was found out to uh, be homosexual. And, uh, and it's easy to get angry about that, to see the effect that it has on the entire family. It's easy to get angry when we see, see people who might push a, a political agenda or a social agenda uh, that's designed in part to damage or destroy the church by stripping away our religious liberty. It's easy for us to get angry about that. But I want you to know that Jesus did not mock sinners, and neither should we. He loved them, and so should we. He reached out to them with a message not only of forgiveness, but a message of empowerment to change. And so should we. And so as we encounter people who do not share our view of human sexuality, which I hope is God's view, then I, I would encourage you to do at least these three things. Number one, listen to them. Listen to them. Because if we won't listen to them, then why should they ever listen to what we have to say? So we're going to have to become good listeners. Secondly, speak God's truth in love. And third, point them to Jesus, because he's the one 
who can change a sinner's heart. And each one of us, I hope, are testimonies of that. So number one question uh, that we'll address today, what does God say about homosexuality? Is it a sin? And the Old Testament speaks on homosexuality. And uh, you don't have to turn there because we won't look at the passage. We won't have time to look at all of these passages in detail. But in Genesis chapter 19, we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Judges chapter 19, we have the story of Gebeah. In both of these uh, stories, there is an attempt at homosexual rape. And uh, some say that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, was not really homosexuality, but it was inhospitality that the people of that city were being inhospitable when those men uh, wanted to homosexually rape two visitors to their city that they didn't know were angels. And, uh, and I would say certainly such a violent act is inhospitable, but I think that misses the point. I think that really understates the issue there. It seems clear to me that the, that the men of Sodom were, had so given themselves over to sexual immorality that their minds were depraved, absolutely depraved. And you can read the details of that story and see how depraved these men were. And God had his judgment come upon that city. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, God told the children of Israel, he told this theocracy, this nation, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Clear cut, black and white. Do not do it. There's a very, it's a straight, very straightforward law of God that prohibits all homosexual acts. And it makes no difference as to whether the act was consensual or not doesn't matter according to that law. Do not do it. It is an abomination. Also in, Levit in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13, we read, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so there you have the punishment that God gave for those that were engaged in that kind of act in the nation of Israel. And so the Old Testament seems to be very clear that God is against this, and God wanted to protect his children, the children of Israel, uh, from this kind of uh, crime against God. The New Testament also teaches us about homosexuality. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the entire chapter of Romans, uh, the first chapter of Romans, deals with the unveiling wrath of God, how God reveals his wrath to mankind. And the ultimate pinnacle of that uh, as Paul builds his argument, is a society that is so uh, in love with homosexuality that it embraces it, that it teaches it, that it glorifies it. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so make no bones about it that Paul himself, the New Testament, right there from the outset in Romans chapter 1, begins to explain to us that homosexuality is outside the bounds of God. It is outside the will of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, uh, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. 
that any one of us that falls into any of those categories will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news is found in the next verse. Such were some of you. You used to be that way. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And so here in this passage, we have hope. We have hope for the homosexual. We have hope for all sinners that God can change us. And He can change not only our destiny, but He can change our nature here in this world. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, again, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So again, there in that list of, uh, of horrible sins against God, of people who the law is designed for so that they can have their sins exposed to God, so hopefully that they can turn from their sin and come to the Lord Jesus Christ in grace. In that list, you have the sin of homosexuality as well as a number of other uh, kinds of uh, sins. Now, sometimes you'll hear it said today, well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. He never said anything like that. But that's not exactly accurate, not completely accurate, because Jesus spoke against any kind of sexual behavior outside the bounds of biblical marriage. For example, when Jesus uses the word fornication in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, it includes any kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of a biblical marriage of one man and one woman. And this is what Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And so what you and I need to be careful of is that we not uh, elevate the sin of homosexuality to a special level that uh, we can just say, oh good, at least we're not guilty of that, we're safe. Because if you read these lists that we just went through, you and I certainly are guilty, at least in our heart, of committing many of these other acts, if not that. And so the New Testament and the Old Testament both condemn the act of homosexuality. Just to be clear, it is a sin. Next question. Can there be such a thing as a homosexual Christian? I want you to... Uh, uh, hear this video of Ravi Zacharias, an apologetics uh, uh, specialist, as he explains his answer to this. Well, before I ask this question, I just uh, want to say that this is a sincere, sincere question and not a judgmental one. Um, I'm a resident of uh, Decatur, Georgia, and I've noticed that there... Uh, has become a very there has become a very prominent lifestyle of uh, homosexuality, uh, all the way up to the point that it's being accepted in a lot of the churches in my neighborhood. And in light of the uh, young man that was in the film earlier, uh, my question is: Is it possible for a man or a woman to live a sincere Christian life as a homosexual? 
I appreciate you asking it, and uh, I believe every reason that you've given is that it's a very sincere question. That's a very tough one. It's one of those questions, no matter how you answer, somebody is probably going to take acceptance uh, to what you say, uh, exception to what you say. So let me, I'll take a few minutes to answer this because it's very critical. Let me start off by telling you a discussion I had with a major network reporter. I was doing three open forums at Indiana University in Bloomington, and uh, this was during the days that Peter Jennings was on his evening news, and Peter Jennings sent a reporter to do a program, to tape a program that I was doing, an open forum in uh, uh, Indiana University. There were over a thousand students and faculty packed there, and the, the, the reporter came up to me before and she said, I have to uh, ask your pardon, but I will not be able to stay for your whole talk. I'm only going to be here for five to ten minutes, take an opening snippet of what you say. It's part of a bigger program. I don't need to be here the whole time. I understand this could go for three hours. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, uh, so I'll be leaving in about five or ten. I said, just do me a favor. Please don't disturb the rest if you move very quietly. I said, but I'm surprised you're leaving that quickly because the real fun part of it starts after the talk when we're in Q&A. I said, I hope you could stay. Well, I started talking, and she sat and sat, leaned back. She didn't move. She stayed the entire three hours plus. She waited till the Q&A was over. She started to walk back with me to where I was uh, having a room, and she said, Mrs. Zacharias, I want to ask you a question. That's why I've stayed. She said, I'll tell you what turns me away from Christianity. She said, you people will talk against racism an awful lot, and I respect that, but then when it comes to the homosexual, you discriminate against the homosexual. She said, I see that double standard. I said, before I answer you, I notice a very interesting way in which you phrased your question. The first part of the question, you were phrasing it about an idea, racism. The second part of the question, you've personalized it and put a person in there that you discriminate as homosexual. I said, I think you should position the question univocally with equal uh, meaning to both terms. I said, having said that, let me ask you a question and then I'll answer yours. I said, the reason we are against racism is because a person's race is sacred. One's ethnicity is sacred. You cannot violate it. I said, my race is sacred, your race is sacred, I dare not violate it. I said, the reason we react against the issue of homosexuality the way we do is because sexuality is sacred too. You cannot violate it. I said, so my question to you is, how do you treat sacred one and desacralize the other? If you will answer that, I will be glad to answer you then. She was silent and she said, I've never thought of it in those terms. Sex is a sacred gift of God. I can no longer justify an aberration of it in somebody else's life, then I can justify my proclivities to go beyond my marital boundaries. Every man here who's an able-bodied man will tell you temptation stalks you every day. Does it have anything to do with your love for your spouse? Probably not, because you can love your spouse with a 100% desire to love the person, but the human body reacts to the sight, entertained by the imagination, and gives you all kinds of false hints that, the, that stolen waters are going to be sweeter. They're not. They leave you emptier. So a, disp a disposition or a proclivity does not justify expressing that disposition and that proclivity. That goes across the board for all, all sexuality. 
When God created mankind and womankind, it, is, it, it was His plan, not our plan. It is, it is extraordinary to me what He said. He said it is not good for a man to live alone. Well, man wasn't living alone. God was with him. Why did He say that? He created the mystique and the majesty and the charm and the complementary nature of womankind in a way that made it possible for her to meet his emotional needs that God himself put only within her. Outside of himself, from himself, in her, in that complementariness. So you take that sacred commitment, it is a design by God. And somebody may say, well, you know, you don't know what it is like then to have that disposition. No, I've talked to people who do. One of the greatest saints of recent memory was Henry Nouwen. If you've read any books by Henry Nouwen, Henry Nouwen was a professor of uh, uh, psychology at Harvard University. And some years ago, he went to um, St. Petersburg in, in Russia, and, uh, and there he went into the, um, the, the, the famed Hermitage Museum, and he saw the painting of Rembrandt on the return of the prodigal son. He looked at that painting, and he couldn't get his eyes off it. Not for one minute, not for two minutes, not for one hour. He sat in front of that painting for three hours. It changed his life. He came back to Harvard, resigned his position, went and worked with the mentally retarded in Toronto. He disclosed in his closing book there that he was dispositionally a homosexual, but never fulfilled that for the sake of Christ. And I have read many authors who say that, so I say to the one who has that disposition, yes, it has to be tough. It has to be tough. But sometimes we renounce our dispositions for the sake of Christ and just wait and hope and trust for the possibility that he would give us that resistance. Now, the tail end of the answer is this. What does it take to believe and do? To be what? You have to fill in the blanks. If you say to me, Ravi, what does it take to be a Christian? I would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that God has raised him from the dead. You, with your heart and mind, trust in Jesus Christ, you're a believer. Then you come to me and say, Ravi, what does it say take to come and belong to your church? I say, well, if you join this particular church where I'm a member now, there are certain doctrinal beliefs you have to believe. You, for example, you can't believe the Bible is 90% rubbish and 10% nice and still be a member of the church. You can't do that. You, there are certain doctrines to which you're committed. There's a certain code of conduct to which you're committed. So if you belong to a community of believers, it is not just the belief in Christ, but a certain community expression of that belief that you're submitted to. Now, you say, what does it take to teach at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford University? I'll say, now you have to add even more than that. So with each line of affiliation, you put the plus, 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 not because the second and the third make you a Christian, but it places upon you greater accountability and responsibility as a dispenser of truth to which you're held accountable by a community of believers. So is it possible for one in that state of mind and that disposition to be a Christian? Absolutely. But can one live practicing that and then become part of a teaching community and a committee of committed believers? I think one would have to raise serious questions where does one draw the line then? Is it okay for the pastor to be a polygamist and be a, and be a pastor of the church at the same time? It ends up dying the death of a thousand qualifications and the character of God is impugned in the process. I think that's the way I believe that with you.
one of the big issues of our day is uh, the idea of same-sex marriage. And uh, we need to address this uh, briefly because it is a, a very explosive issue. It's an issue that uh, will affect every one of us uh, one day, or sooner or later, uh, if things are not changed. Um, this is very much a generational issue. And what I mean by that is, by and large, people that are over, believers that are over 40 years old have a tendency to say, no, homosexual marriage or you know, same-sex marriage is wrong, it shouldn't be allowed, um, and uh, that's the end of it. By and large, believers that are under 40 have this attitude. I don't agree with it personally, but if a same-sex couple wants to marry, that's their business. And so this is an issue that I think we need to, to address, and I need to impress upon you why same-sex marriage is not something that we can simply uh, pass off as uh, something equivo uh, equivocable to regular marriage, biblical marriage, whatever you want to call it, heterosexual marriage. The issue is the nature of marriage itself. There's a couple of questions that we need to answer. Number one is who created marriage? So if marriage is simply the creation of mankind, it's the creation of this culture, and there's a means by which to suppress women, and whatever else all the sociologists might want to say. If marriage is simply the creation of mankind, then man can redefine marriage however he wants. But Scripture teaches that marriage is created by God. In that passage that uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they both shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here's the parameters. If marriage is created by God, which it is, then God is the one who sets the boundaries. God is the one who creates the parameters. Marriage is, this is the definition of marriage, marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. Those are the parameters, those are the boundaries that God has made. Marriage is not to be cut short in its length, it is lifelong. Marriage is not to forsake companionship, we are to be companions and complementarians of, of each other, the male and the female. Marriage is not to be between two men, not to be between two women. God has set the boundary that it's one man and one woman, and marriage is not to have more than one other partner in your marriage. And so this is the definition of marriage, a lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. The other question that we have done a horrible job as believers in answering is this question, for what purposes did God create marriage? For what purposes? Purpose number one, to make us complete. To make us complete. Adam was incomplete without a life mate. Did you catch what Ravi Zacharias said? Here's Adam, completely perfect in every way. No sin in the world. God is there walking with him. He has the entire world to himself. And God said, in this state of perfection, God said, something's not good. What cannot be good? There's no sin in the world. God said something's not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Because God did not create man, Adam, to be complete within himself. But he needed one like him yet different. 
to be his perfect complement. And so did she need that when she came along. Same-sex marriage is always missing a man or a woman. Therefore, it is always incomplete. It will not satisfy. God created marriage for a second purpose, to provide us with the fulfillment of our sexual drive in a way that glorifies God. On the other hand, same-sex marriage seeks to fulfill sexual desire as well, but it does so in a way that is not natural and in a way that displeases God. God created marriage for a third reason, to continue the human race in a way that is beneficial to our children and future generations with a father and a mother for those kids. But same-sex marriage cannot naturally produce any children. And children that come into that family of a same-sex couple are missing either a father or a mother to their detriment. And it will have long-term generational consequences. God created marriage for a fourth reason, for us to protect one another. The husband protects his wife. He provides security for her by being willing to lay down his life because of his love for her. The wife protects the home by being acutely aware of the children's needs. You know, you know that's true. Us guys, we're clueless sometimes. We don't get it. We're not in tune with anything. But there's something about the way God made a mom. She, she knows. She just knows. Mom, moms have eyes all over the house and the back of their head and everywhere. They just know, right? In the same-sex marriage... That kind of marriage is missing either the man's or the woman's God-given instincts and inner constitution. And that protection is not available. Whatever protection the man or the woman provides the family. And God created marriage for a fifth reason. To bring us closer to God. Marriage represents Christ and His church. Read Ephesians 5. It represents Christ in his church, marriage is one way that God helps us grow spiritually and become like Christ. We've talked about this before, how guys, in that passage of, marriage, of Ephesians chapter 5, God has given you the awesome responsibility, men, of creating an environment where your wife can grow spiritually, where she can become everything that God created her to be. And so if you're not providing that environment, then you're doing it to the detriment of your wife. And so one day when you stand before God and God says to you men, what did you do in the home? What did you do as a husband? You ought to be able to say, here is my wife and I present her as an offering to you. And so marriage helps us grow closer to God. But same-sex marriage, it does not and cannot glorify God. It produces rather a state of habitual sin which drives people further away from God. Same-sex marriage cannot fulfill any of these purposes, not any one of them. And these are the purposes, these are the reasons God created marriage, and same-sex marriage cannot fulfill any one of them. At best, same-sex marriage is two people sharing affection. But real marriage is so much more. So much more than that. So what do we do about same-sex marriage within our society? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that we no longer live in a Christian nation. 
Okay, we, we may live in a, in a nation that has a foundation that's Christian, but even that foundation is beginning to crumble. Um, and so it's, it's eroding away. So as true believers in Christ, we need to understand, we need to, need to come to the grips with the fact that we live in an unrighteous, ungodly nation. But that's not always a bad thing, because the light always shines brightest when it's very dark. And even if we lose this battle in society and in government over the perceived definition of marriage, that can't change God's truth. Okay, so even if the Supreme Court in June rules, as I believe they will, that same-sex marriage is the law of the land. I think that's coming next month. And even if they rule that way, and we just have to suck it up and go with it, it does not change a thing with regard to truth. Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, let, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And so we're going to find ourselves very much in the same position that some of our missionaries are in when they go to, to strange lands and strange cultures, and there a, a man gets saved, and, and uh, he's got four wives. Well, that's not right. What do you do? Well, just because they have a, a wrong definition of marriage doesn't mean God can't work. So we need to be salt and light and uphold the eternal standards of God, even if our nation for, forfeits and abandons the foundation that this nation was built upon. In the end, our declaration of the truth may cause us to be persecuted. We may lose our 501c3 status one day. We may uh, lose uh, any kinds of freedoms that we might currently experience. You know, and if they take away our money, that's fine. We'll get so much more treasure in the resurrection. So don't, don't love money. If they take away our freedom, they throw us in jail, that's fine. We, we can have church in jail. I mean, we already have cell groups, right? We'll have real cell groups in jail. And uh, so don't love your freedom. And if someday they get so mad at us that they take away our life, that's okay. That's okay. Because we have eternal life. So don't love your life. Jesus said don't love it. Don't love the things of this world. And so, just be ready for our nation to continue down this path. I want to share with you, finally, the, the most important question that we need to answer. It's this. Can God really change homosexuals? Can he really change a homosexual? Yeah, I want you to see this uh, video. Before we start the video, I want to introduce who this is. This, this guy is a guy by the name of Dennis Jernigan. He's written over 4,000 praise and worship songs. And he, uh, has, he struggled with being a homosexual for many years of his life. And God set him free. And I want you to hear his testimony that he shares. Uh, the Lord set me free uh, back in 1981. I thought that's the way I was. I, in fact, I'd given up. I said, this is just the way I was born. I'm going to stop fighting it. I'm going to embrace it. And the minute I embraced it, I dived headlong into a relationship. I'm very ashamed to even admit that. But uh, I gave myself to this life, and I expected peace to come. And for a season, I guess it did. But after a while, I became so frustrated, so felt so used all the time. I thought, well, this can't be right either. So I went on this incredible journey of discovery. I cut off this relationship I was in. I decided I'd go on to seminary, and then God began to speak to me 
three days before I was to go to seminary because a friend called me and said, Dennis, I've been, the Lord's been speaking to me about you, which scared me to death because I thought, man, the Lord does not speak to me about me. So what's he saying to this guy? Well, he said, the Lord came to him in a dream. And in this dream, God was giving me music and people all over the world were singing the songs. And he said, to confirm it to you, my mom had the same dream this week. We'd like to know if you'd be interested in moving to Oklahoma City, live with us, give God a chance to work this in your life. So three days later, I'm living in Oklahoma City, driving a school bus to make a living. That's the only job I could find. But God's hand was all over that because what it forced me to do is cry out to God in this sense. Here's homosexuality calling my name. I mean, I'm being tempted, dragged that way all the time. Here's my friend telling me the things the Lord's telling him. So I'm being pulled in two opposing directions and a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I didn't know what to do. I thought, I'm losing my mind. So I... After my morning bus routes, I'd take my Bible, go to my friend's piano, open to Psalm 1 because I remembered the stories of King Saul when he was beset by those evil spirits. They'd send for that shepherd boy to come and play, and I imagined David just worshipped there, and it says the enemy would flee, so I thought, I'll do that for myself. I opened to Psalm 1 and literally began singing through the Psalms. And after a while of singing, I'd literally sung through the Psalms. I realized David committed adultery, David committed murder, yet David's commemorated as being a man after God's own heart, and I thought, I want that. And if you can do that for David, Lord, do it for me. There were a series of events. This, this friend who had the dream found out what I was struggling with and confronted me, but he confronted me in love. I'd never had anyone respond to me this way at all. He said, Dennis, I don't know how to help you. He said, I just know I know the answer. I said, what? He said, yeah, the answer is Jesus. I said, I've heard that my whole life. He said, not like this, you haven't. He said, I believe Jesus is the answer so much. I'm willing to walk towards him with you as long as it takes. If you fall down, I will not kick you. I will not tease you. I will not say I told you so. I will just help you up every time. He said, if you need a shoulder to cry on, I'm your guy. If you need someone to yell at when you don't understand, yell at me. I can take it. Mm. I had to go outside the church to find somebody who would love me like Jesus. And that guy did. And he still walks with me to this day. So that in itself, God used in a humongous way. I can't even overemphasize it enough to tell you what just one person stepping outside their comfort zone and saying, here, I'm going to walk with you. I don't even understand it myself, but I know the love of Jesus is the answer. So lo and behold, at a second chapter of Acts concert, November 7th, 1981, I got set free to such a degree I'd only imagined happening. So much healing came in a two-year period that he gave me a wife, and it's true, Melinda and I have nine children. We're not Mormon. We're not Catholic. They're not adopted. <laughs> and yes, we know what causes that. <laughs> but here's the deal. I remember being a little boy sitting in the church pew. By the time I'm 10, I already knew my struggle. And one Sunday morning before church started, I was playing with my brothers and cousins, and I overheard the men who taught me about God from day one discussing what they thought of homosexual. So guess what I thought God thought about me? I thought God hated me. And no one ever told me that I could be free. They only said, you do not get to pass go. You do not collect $200. You get to go straight to hell because of your sin. And I thought, oh, my goodness, once the Lord set me free, I'm, if I can help it, I'm not going to let anybody else go without hearing the good news that freedom is possible, hope is possible. Somebody loves you right where you are, but loves you enough to not leave you there. Where can someone go? if they struggle with homosexuality. You know, I hope that we will be the kind of church where someone could say, I need help. And we would not condemn them, but we would point them to Christ, like Dennis's friend did. I want you to understand that as your pastor, you can come to me with any struggle that you may have. And my commitment is the same that Dennis's friend was, I'll walk with you. 
I'll find the resources to help you, but we will, I will not abandon you. I will not give up on you. I will not put you down because that is what a Christian, and especially a pastor, should do. 